Hello and welcome to Susan Bitcoin Podcast. Uh, today's episode is with Reed Walmack from Swan Bitcoin. He is the uh, head of the customer support over there. So if you run into a problem, you're probably going to be talking to Reed and he's a really helpful guy and helping solve the problems. Uh, Swan Bitcoin is definitely my favorite spot to buy Bitcoin. And the reason why is because... Uh, they're a company built on integrity, and uh, you know I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, uh, Jan Pritzker, who's their CTO, earlier this year, and you know talking with a handful of their team, and they're all solid from you know Corey and Brady and Brecky, you know all those guys. Um, I would highly suggest you go over to their website, uh, look at their team, and make sure to follow every single one of them on uh, on Twitter. Um, and yeah, they're always posting good po- content. Uh, this year they launched uh, Bitcoin TV, which is just a 24-hour live stream of Bitcoin content. And it's fun to tune into and watch um, because they have some of the best Bitcoin podcasters uh, content featured on there. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, most of the other exchanges you go in and you log in and you get swamped with all these altcoins and you know other features and they just make it simple. Um, they're built on this uh, idea of dollar cost averaging. So you can set up um, a weekly buy, which is what I have going right now, and then it auto withdraws to uh, my wallet. So um, I don't have to leave it on the exchange. And they just make it super easy and awesome. Um, so yeah, if you use my referral link, uh, you don't have to, but if you do, it definitely goes towards supporting the podcast, and I'll appreciate it a lot. Um, but yeah, I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Reed. Cool. Well, welcome, Reed. Uh, so, Reed, you're a customer support specialist at uh, uh, Swan Bitcoin, and you also have a newsletter called uh, BTC Buddha, right? Or Bitcoin Buddha? Yeah, the Bitcoin Buddha. So I read it, write a little bit. Of Bitcoin every week. Nice. Do you do you practice Buddhism? Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of my background. The last five or six years, I've been really into Buddhism. Cool. Um, and that was actually sort of my previous obsession before I got into Bitcoin. <laughs> so I still meditate for sure. Um, but, but, you know, I used to go to a bunch of retreats, uh, meditate many, many hours during the day. Uh, now, now my meditation has decreased somewhat. Bitcoin consumption has increased. <laughs> nice. Meditate on Bitcoin. <laughs> People ask me about that. I don't, I, don't, I don't really think you can do it, or at least not the style of meditation I do. Sure. Bitcoin is a bit too conceptual. <laughs> gotcha so so i i guess just rolling off of that what uh what principles about bitcoin uh kind of overlap with uh buddhist principles um good question (laughs) they they really are two very disparate fields uh that only occasionally have this overlap and when they do I get very excited and seeing seeing the ways and they speak to each other. But for the most part, they are two sort of totally different realms of knowledge and realms of reality, I've found. Um, in, for the most part, 
like most Buddhist teachings don't ever really, they don't really cover like uh, market dynamics. They don't cover like how you should spend, you know, your time. They don't cover like business uh, and they, and they, and it really starts from this foundation, not so Buddhism starts from a foundation of like, you have these desires. How do you let go of the desires? And so that's just a, a totally different question than Bitcoin, which starts with the sort of Austrian economics foundation, which is you have these desires, you have these goals, how do you achieve those goals? And so it's just two different, completely different ways of, of looking at the world. One is actually trying to achieve goals. The other is like trying to let go of achieving goals altogether. And so as a result, they don't often overlap much. Uh, when they do, again, it's really exciting for me. Um, and yeah, but for the most part, for the most part, day in, day out, I like will just flip from one way of viewing the world to another way of viewing the world. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting how those are kind of polar opposites. I've uh, been getting into a bit more uh, Buddhist meditation recently. Um, some, I'm going to mispronounce her name, but Pima Chodron. Um, yeah. Uh, Tibetan Tibetan nun who has a monastery in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean the meditation. <laughs> I think everybody's suffering from a bit of a craziness right now. So uh, a bit of uh, being able to let go and detach um, and be in the present moment uh, skills that you can really develop with meditation, and then uh, also having some hope for the future in Bitcoin for the financial system. Um, I think it's a pretty good combo to have right now. Um, for sure, for sure. I, I think it's a, a, a good combination of, of skills and worldviews. And as sort of you mentioned, meditation much more focused on the present moment. Bitcoin in a lot of ways is much more gearing you towards planning for the future. Um, both, you know, I think both are important, but uh, if you get caught up and and both need you, you need to balance both of them because if you caught up and get caught up in either one, um, you're gonna have a hard time uh, thriving in life. If you live too much in the present, you know I've I've been on retreats where I just am like absurdly focused in the present so much so that you like almost stop taking care of yourself. You're like oh, you know these sensations of hunger. That's interesting. I'm just gonna contemplate hunger for like six hours <laughs> and then you don't even eat. <laughs> And then similarly, if you're always focused on the future, uh, you never actually experience life because the future never arrives, you know, helpful to plan for occasionally, but it, it, you can never touch it. You can never experience it. It, it doesn't really exist. It's this conception. Um, so if you just live always planning for the future, you're never going <laughs> to, like, you're never going to be happiness. Sure. So how did you end up working at uh, Swan Bitcoin? Yeah, good question. Um, so starting, I got, got really into Bitcoin about a um, little under two years ago. So in the started getting into it in the fall of 2018, right, as the price was crashing. Um, and then through the winter, started reading a lot. And then the uh, number go up in the spring of 2019, sucked me in deep, uh, became a Bitcoin maximalist last summer, beginning of last summer. Um, and then 
like everyone who <laughs> that gets a certain distance down the rabbit hole uh, became overwhelmingly motivated to spread the gospel <laughs> to like anyone who would listen. Um, so I was trying to find ways to get my parents and, and my family on board. Contemplated just like, you know, like leaving my wilderness therapy, going and living with, you know, each family member for two weeks to have dinner with them every night and try and convince them to buy Bitcoin. Didn't end up doing that, um, but instead started a newsletter um, and was initially writing it every day. Um, sort of functioning to, con I guess, threefold. One was for me to learn more about Bitcoin. You know, I'm relatively new to the space. Um, so it provided motivation for me to study and, and uh, research. The second one was connect with family. Because, uh, you know, the more I got into Bitcoin, the more I realized the importance of family. And then the third was to try and actually convince some of my family to, to look into Bitcoin and start buying it. Um, and so that's, that was sort of the initial goals of, of the newsletter. It's, it's changed a bit more recently um, as I opened it up to friends and then opened it up to random people. And now, I mean, most of the newsletters, people I don't personally know. <laughs> and my parents are still on it. My friends are still on it. But the uh, vast majority are, are sort of people I've met through Twitter um, and people in the Bitcoin space. So it's, it's no longer or it's slightly more complex topics now that I deal with. It's especially in the beginning, it was really just introducing the concepts to my family. But, but now it's sort of every week I write on something that, whatever I find interesting that, that week in Bitcoin. So, you know, last week I, I wrote about Jan's book that he had just started giving away for free called Inventing Bitcoin. The week before was about the sovereign individual um, and sort of the end of the nation state. Um, but I, yeah covered a, a, a wide range of things in Bitcoin. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm currently going through the sovereign individual and I've been enjoying it uh, quite a bit. It, it is a very interesting uh, idea. And I look forward to starting my own set at all here pretty soon. But, <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, so what are, um, for somebody that's new to what Bitcoin is, what are uh, the most important concepts to understand? That's a big question, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that I would just frame it as it's the hard, it's the most difficult money to make and to earn. And so therefore, you want to own it. <laughs> it requires the most energy and the most effort to produce. And therefore, um, it's, it's very, very difficult uh, for it to, well, it's impossible for it to be inflated away. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but framing it as, as this like, very rare, very difficult to acquire good. Um, I think is sort of my favorite way to introduce it to beginners is it's, it's not something that's easy to get. Um, it's not something that's easy to make. And, and that act, that sort of gives it value. Aside from all of the, the cool things you can do with it. Um, but the, the, the incentive structure makes it almost just impossible to, to produce. 
<laughs> so that's a, that's actually why I don't I don't I'm not a huge fan of like Bitcoin giveaways um, that that uh, some people do because that's like just totally the wrong framework for how to think about Bitcoin. If you're like trying to introduce people to Bitcoin, really, like when I was I was first introducing people to Bitcoin, I was you know I would try and like give people ten dollars of Bitcoin <laughs> just to like get them looking at the price, um, but more and more. You know, as of like a year ago, that just makes no sense to me because you need to frame it to people as as the most difficult to produce and the difficult, most difficult to acquire good in the world, and and that I think will encourage them to to buy it themselves. <laughs> yeah, and that's really interesting. Uh, I, I found that most people don't know how money works or where it comes from and bitcoin is usually that introduction for people to start asking those questions uh and that's a really interesting uh way to frame bitcoin as the hardest money to produce uh you know for people that are just starting to question what bitcoin is there's warehouses full of computers specifically dedicated to compete to produce new blocks um, and earn Bitcoin rewards. Uh, so it is, there's a ton of energy that goes into it. And I was actually, uh, um, I'm gonna talk with Dr. Chris Dark. Uh, he has an awesome podcast um, about how uh, energy could be the future world reserve currency, which is, a pretty interesting uh, topic, but yeah, Bitcoin in a sense is representation of that uh, energy of that, uh, that, that is taken to produce it. And it just gets more and more difficult to produce um, over time. So yeah, I like, I like that. That's a really good um, take on it. And I, not the usual take, <laughs> it's usually fixed supply, you know, which is important too, but um, yeah. Yeah, that is that is absolutely important. But I mean, a lot of things at this point, a lot of altcoins have fixed supply now. And so mm. to me, framing it that way is somewhat misleading. Because if you look at, at any hard fork of Bitcoin, that hard fork also has a fixed supply. There's not going to be any more of, say, Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV um, than 21 million. And so you can't really argue that Bitcoin is the only supply cap thing in the world or that that its supply cap is what makes it particularly special compared to these other um other currencies it it's important for sure and it's important compared to fiat definitely but um there's more to it than just its supply capped mm -hmm. yeah yeah um so what what swayed you from uh, or what, what convinced you to become a Bitcoin maximalist? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a really good question. Because uh, especially when you're new to cryptocurrencies and new to Bitcoin, um, you get into the space and you want to be as open-minded as possible. And, and in order to even get into looking at Bitcoin, you have to be open-minded. <laughs> and, then, and then strangely enough, uh, it seems as if a lot of the smartest people in the world uh, like are encouraging you to be incredibly open-minded by thinking about Bitcoin. But then once you start thinking about Bitcoin, they're incredibly 
or, or can be portrayed as being very close-minded and saying, don't even consider anything else. Um, and, and for beginners, that, that can be a little confusing, right? Because you're used to operating in one worldview using dollars, and then you're asked to sort of open your, open your worldview, consider another, another money, and consider another sort of uh, political framework, um, an economic framework and paradigm to look through. And then once you're, once you're sort of coaxed along a little bit into this worldview, you're, you're then told, don't consider all these other, you know, coins, don't consider all these other worldviews, stay within <laughs> these bounds. Um, and so I, so a lot of, you know, a lot of people in cryptocurrency, if there is an industry in cryptocurrency, they, uh, they sort of, they can tease Bitcoin maximalists for this like strange paradox, right? Like, be open-minded enough to think about digital assets. Don't be open-minded enough by considering all these other alternative assets. I mean, and that's that from the outside, you know, that's a, a pretty fair criticism. Um, for me, at least, as I was starting to do research into the Bitcoin, I just routinely found that the smartest people were all Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. Um, and their arguments against some of the alternative currencies were, were just stronger. Um, and their, their sort of, their worldviews were slightly more cohesive than the worldviews um, put out by people who are sort of endorsing other cryptocurrencies. Um, and so I, that for me was sort of the, the kernel of like why you know the kernel question is like why do the smartest people seem to all be um, all be coalescing around this one thing, and why don't I see that with some other communities um, that I was I was exposed to, um, and 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 so from that question, so to start doing research, like more and more research, and and as I looked into a lot of the other a lot of the other cryptocurrencies, uh, it, yeah, it just became increasingly clear that they, that, that they were vastly different, <laughs> vastly different from Bitcoin <laughs> um, in that they weren't difficult to produce. Um, they didn't have strong, strong histories, didn't have strong communities, didn't always have a, a like a user base that could, that could verify the rules of the system for themselves. A lot of the other cryptocurrency user bases rely a lot on trust or sort of this like token leadership that they put all their faith in. Um, whereas in the Bitcoin community, there, there seemed to be this like ruthless independence that people had somehow like coalesced around. Um, and so they weren't trusting a leader um, or they weren't trusting, you know, an, an organization or a company. They, the, the people who coalesced around Bitcoin were both really smart, um, but they were also like ruthlessly independent <laughs> in like wanting to, to verify everything for themselves. Um, and, and so that, those were, those are sort of like the, the social explanation of how I got into to Bitcoin and became a Bitcoin maximalist. I mean, the economic explanation is that uh, 
sort of goes back to, to Mises' idea that all monies tend towards one. Money is, is a very different good than most consumer goods in that with most consumer goods, uh, the market is stronger and, and better if you have more options. Um, so it's, it's better for the world if we have you know, 10 different car companies than if we just have one car company. And money is, is a very strange good in that that's not actually the case. It's like much easier and better for the world to have one money than to have a fractured system of, of fiat monies or a fractured system of, um, of cryptocurrencies. Um, so, so from like the worldview perspective, it's, it's better to just have one currency. And from the individual perspective, um, where, where everything really starts and how you build up to that worldview is if, if you're an individual, you do not want to make multiple trades to get to the good you want. You want to make as few of trades as possible to get from what you have to the goal that you have in mind. And if you have to trade through multiple monies, that's just an inefficiency and that that's friction. And so typically you'll trade your labor for money and then you'll trade your money for the good or service that you, you want. And the more times you have to switch into alternative currencies or alternative goods, uh, like the more of a hassle it is <laughs> and, uh, and the more you're, you're likely to lose a little bit in slippage. Um, and so individuals will naturally just try and find the most saleable good for, you know, many, many years that was gold. And then gold had some, some issues. <laughs> gold has some issues. Um, it's really heavy. It's not really that divisible. Um, and so people wanted an easier way to, to trade um and paper money had a lot of actually advantages over gold it was much easier to, to, to divide into smaller parts it was also much easier to trade massive volumes um over a distance and, and do that relatively quickly um and and so then paper money became the most saleable good and so to my thesis and a lot of a lot of Bitcoin maximalist thesis is that Bitcoin is, is now going to turn into the most saleable good. And, and, uh, and the market will slowly realize that Bitcoin is much more saleable, much easier to move around, um, and, and has better protections than fiat money and than, than paper money. Yeah, that, that's an awesome explanation. Uh, a lot of these altcoins try to market themselves as money and they're not necessarily focused on money. But yeah, for the new person coming in, uh, you know, they're probably going to be on like uh, crypto YouTube or crypto Twitter and be getting all these. Th I, I find that one of the biggest drivers into cryptocurrency is the search for easy money. Um, sure. Yeah, that draws in probably 90% of the people, yep. of people. Mm -hmm. like people who, who didn't come in as, as previously Austrian um, or previous, yeah, previously Austrian economics people or, or previously like in libertarian, uh, deeply libertarian folks, 90% of the people that are coming in think that Bitcoin will make the money really, really fast. <laughs> and, and so... You know, it's these like price pumps that'll suck people in. Um, but then over time, they'll sort of realize like, oh, it's actually not. <laughs> the reason I got in was for easy money. But the reason they stay is, is for hard money. Um, when they realize that, that Bitcoin is incredibly difficult to make. <laughs> yeah. 
and to realize it's incredibly difficult to make it it's always a good uh experiment to try and get out there and start mining on your laptop or something like that just to realize how <laughs> do not for anyone listening do not try and mine from your laptop <laughs> you're gonna lose lose a lot of money if you try to do that or lose a little bit of money and not make very much bitcoin it's gonna be a Remember, waste of time yeah, yeah a year and a half ago i i when i first got into or when i, I for a year and a half ago i had that idea i was like oh i should just mine from my laptop and i like downloaded some uh some program i think called honey miner mm-hmm. uh started, started trying to mine and it was like making me like one cent every like two months or something and and simultaneously using a like my laptop is running very hot <laughs> it's like impossible yeah. to do other things on my laptop <laughs> and then actually later realized that uh, i think that whole thing that whole program is just like malware <laughs> so don't use any miner don't don't try to mine from your laptop <laughs> yeah i wouldn't suggest it either you'll just fry your uh, laptop um now running a node is different that might be a good experiment for somebody new to download like the BTC core um, node. Um, I found that pretty inter- or pretty fun. And, but yeah, there's so many of those yeah. different programs that, you know, promise. Uh, I, I remember there was like a Google Chrome uh, browser that supposedly mined and yeah. waste of money money, waste of time but yeah but and and again 99 percent of any of cloud mining is also a scam so if if anyone contacts you saying like send me bitcoin or send me money and i'll mine for you uh don't do it (laughs) you're you're much better off just buying bitcoin yourself than, than sending money to some online internet stranger uh with the promise that they'll give you more bitcoin in the future (laughs) <laughs> yeah don't send your bitcoin to elon musk either yeah exactly or whatever exactly. these crypto scams on, on youtube but yeah um so yeah ma- maximalism is uh something i really appreciate and i think it's something that keeps people um clear of getting into a lot of trouble typically if you're going to invest in altcoins you're not investing in money you're investing in a technology or like a utility service in my opinion um and the yeah <laughs> yeah i don't i don't even really think of them as technologies or utility services it's really just gambling mm-hmm. um because ultimately they're all competing against bitcoin and bitcoin is just going to wreck every single other utility token um and it it may be it may possibly be that some sorts of like equity offerings, um, the, the nature of equity offerings changes. Um, and so that maybe the New York Stock Exchange may not be the only place you can sort of buy a stake in a public company. That, that may happen. Um, I'm not gonna say that it's, <laughs> it's gonna happen on the, on the blockchain, um, but, but even if sort of these other assets are the, the nature of ownership of those changes, they're still competing against the most profound monetary technology in 10,000 years. Um, and so there's still just so much more risk associated with 
other digital assets than with with Bitcoin. You you have yeah, you've got you just have so much more risk <laughs> if you decide to to gamble on these other altcoins. You have um yeah, oh my god. Yeah. So I don't touch them personally. Like I I understand if people uh want to try and make money uh gambling essentially and trying to get in and out of, of altcoins and, and they're not gonna go away. Um it's not like like in the next ten years Bitcoin is is or all crypto other cryptocurrencies are gonna cease to exist. Um <laughs> but uh but they will continue to just have these like crazy pump and dumps, uh, I think for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, essentially until central, in my view, until central banking really falls and until society has moved towards a predominantly low time preference culture in which people are no longer interested in gambling and no longer really can conceptualize like, scamming people and making <laughs> making a quick buck um that's and and central banking has is like a thing of the past that's when i think you'll you'll really see um altcoins fade away um in the meantime <laughs> there's going to be a new one every every few months a new pump and dump and uh mm -hmm. and chances are if, if you try and pursue it you're going to lose mm -hmm. uh, you're you're going to guess wrong yeah. Um, that's not to say that there won't be ones that'll, you know, go up a thousand percent and you could sell it at the top. Um, but most likely you're going to buy it up at a thousand percent and then it's going to crash down to zero. Mm -hmm. um, so most, again, most people who trade lose money uh, in traditional markets. It's like 95% in, in crypto markets. It's 99%. Um, so unless you are a, a professional trader by, by day, you you probably don't want to spend your nights trading, <laughs> or or investing in in altcoins. Uh, and you're much better off just sort of setting aside a little bit of of your earnings into Bitcoin every day, every week, every month, um, and sort of trying to <laughs> steer clear of of the altcoins. Yeah, that's some good advice. Um, and uh, if anybody's you know, listening and pushing back against that. It'd be good to go watch Dave Portnoy and his reaction to uh, all of his money he lost in Chainlink recently. <laughs> but yeah, I got into um, I got into Bitcoin about the same time you did. And uh, when I came in, Litecoin was touted as like the silver to Bitcoin's gold. And now it's just like <laughs> a dead project pretty much from what I can tell. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's the other thing. The longer you're in, the more you see these. Uh, um, the more you see the life cycle of altcoins and mm -hmm. how each month there's sort of a new one that's touted, promoted, and then it goes on a run for a few months, and then it sort of fades away. People just sort of stop talking about it, stop <laughs> saying anything about it as the chart drops to zero, um, and then there's a new one touted and, and sort of new jargon, new lingo, uh, new, new claims that this new blockchain, this new coin can do things that the other one can't do mm -hmm. or fills this, this important niche that we've always needed. <laughs> um, and yeah, and the more you see these cycles, the more you, you sort of realize that there's nothing really new under the sun in terms of uh, 
cryptocurrencies that uh, that maybe the <laughs> the original was onto something <laughs> and it, it still keeps doing exactly what it's doing like hasn't failed 99.9% uptime uh, and it keeps delivering on its promises um, whereas you know some of these other coins they'll seem like they're going somewhere for a few months and then crash and burn <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i i got a real kick out of watching uh crypt some of crypto twitter freak out about xrp realizing that xrp is a scam this week and that was pretty funny oh, oh yeah I, i'm 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 not really actually in crypto twitter <laughs> I, a, much, yeah. a narrower niche of bitcoin twitter and so mm-hmm. that went totally over my head i, I mean i i realized that yeah, very long time ago that yeah. XRP is a, a total scam. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate that um, so many people have been uh, lost so much money on a project like that. Uh, was as as an aside was was like did crypto Bitlord have something to do with X, like revealing to everyone that XRP is a scam? Like like why are people just waking up to this now? Yeah, I, I think it was him in particular that was uh, freaking out, and I unfollowed him um, because I was kind of on the same path as you, realizing like you know a lot of this is just like a waste of energy and time to be uh, people getting scanned by these stupid projects. Um, but uh, oh man, yeah. All right, we got two toxic mask maximalists together talking. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so yeah i mean you were talking a little bit earlier about how uh libertarians uh which tend to have a a view of uh uh an economic view of uh, austrian uh school of thought um what where i'm trying to come and and show people is that uh that mindset is actually gonna be the best to create um, a fair and equitable society um, and will be more successful in addressing issues of like poverty and extreme wealth and unfair extreme wealth inequality. Um, do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Cause I initially um, pretty convinced that Bitcoin would, would fix the rising inequality we see in the world and that that rising inequality in in my view is the cause of a lot of the social unrest that we see um and and sort of the the increasingly partisan politics the divisiveness um yeah and sort of the, the the social like the fraying of the social fabric that um sort of feels feels to be happening now um compared to say if you if you look back at like the 1950s or the um or you know the 1900 1910s like you didn't have that sort of feeling of the, the social fabric fraying and then this massive inequality in wealth and i and, and thought that bitcoin in a lot of ways would would solve that and i think there's a compelling case to be made that it could that is that essentially fiat money disproportionately targets poor people and disproportionately takes their savings. Um, And wealthy people are able to move their savings into assets that are scarce and those assets are protected against inflation. Whereas poor people 
because um, they need the liquidity. They, they simply can't buy houses or buy stocks um, or buy gold. They, they need to have that money under their mattress or, or in their savings account um, in order to, to survive because they never know when they may need that $500 to, to pay for an emergency room visit or something. Um, and so fiat disproportionately targets poor people for sure. Um, and I think if you look at the great website, WTF happened in 1971, you'll, you'll see that in a lot of ways, like since 1971, when, when fiat really took off and we detached from the gold standard, um, inequality has been rising for sure. Um, and that's, that's actually, that's sort of the dominant narrative within the Bitcoin community, um, or a dominant narrative in the Bitcoin community is that, um, Bitcoin will help fix some of, of wealth inequality. Um, that, so to that said, it, it, uh, the Austrian view and, and sort of the, the radical self-sovereignty of Bitcoin uh, likely means that anyone who, or it, it, it leads to pure meritocracy really and and would lead to a pure meritocracy economy in which there's there's really not that many large social safety nets provided by the state um and so like right now we have massive welfare programs um you have a lot of subsidy for for poverty in, in various areas and and under a bitcoin standard that would effectively go away that it would be increasingly difficult for governments to fund and, and subsidy those types of programs and so in, in, people would increasingly have to rely on themselves their family and their, their tight social networks for that sort of support um that said i i i personally think that that would actually lead to improved life outcomes rather than sort of reduced life outcomes that that sort of encouraging people to be more self-sufficient, rely on themselves and their families is, is a much more functional way to build a society than having these massive social welfare programs that are incredibly bureaucratic. There's, there's a lot more waste there and, and you're much better off essentially seeking support from the people closest to you than seeking support from some massive state. Um, so that, that's been my thinking for the last year. Um, as I read the sort of sovereign individual though, it, it, that book has a slightly different take in, in, in arguing, and I'm, I'm not fully convinced of this, but it, but it is a, a reasonable idea to consider that with the rise of, of sort of digital stores of wealth, people will be able to move their money into the digital realm. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the low level jobs will be automated. Um, and so increasingly like investors, inventors, coders, people who are really savvy, tech savvy, will be able to, to, to produce an enormous amount of value and, and people who, um, people who are sort of like the day laborers that is going to be le increasingly less uh, less valuable because those those sorts of hard goods are well then then <laughs> digital goods have far more value than than hard goods increasingly because digital goods you can send anywhere in the world um, it's incredibly easy to protect them with encryption from confiscation from the government or from your peers whereas physical goods require a lot more security and so if you're just like building a house you know that's going to get taxed more whereas if you're just 
taking all that value and storing in Bitcoin, that's not going to get taxed. And so all of the people who are sort of doing these physical roles and building the physical world, those jobs uh, and that value is, is going to be far, far less than, than what you can earn in the digital world. And so the, the sovereign individual suggests like you're going to actually, you may actually see, see even greater disparity um, in wealth. And because you'll have these people who have the skills to, to produce digital content, uh, code, new websites, build businesses that aren't located physically anywhere, but are located, you know, can, can operate from anywhere. Um, and then the people who are, you know, the construction workers, those sorts of goods are not going to be as valuable. And so they're not going to make as much. In some ways, that's a compelling, compelling framework. Um, I think in other ways, though, like the Austrian view of, of that argument would be that um, individuals will, will naturally just move toward uh, providing the service that, that pays them the most. Um, and, and if that means you know, construction workers will end up being transcribers, uh, then, uh, then so be it. And, uh, and, and, and people will move from sort of producing more physical goods to producing more digital goods and they'll make the, that transition for themselves. So it's not like these construction workers or, or people who are, um, building, yeah, like working in factories now will be unable to make that switch in, into a, a more digital world. Um, so, so anyway, that <laughs> sorry to bring up two ideas there. One is the idea that, you know, Bitcoin will fix all wealth inequality. And, and the second one is like, that's nah, actually going to be a pure meritocracy. And, and there are, there are some reasons that uh, people who will thrive in the digital realm will be able to, to corner and, and produce more value than, than ever before even yeah it's a wow that's a lot to unpack there um <laughs> yeah i think bitcoin is a, a good frame i had the guys um colin and ben on from the wtf happened in 1971 and they're really awesome um and one of the things that they said is you know you were talking about unrest in society and you know if if things were economically good in our society, people would have better things to do than to go protest um, and be really angry. You know, they'd probably be content. Uh, but instead, it, things are so bad that, you know, we're um, uh, facing a huge eviction crisis and people can't afford food. And, and that's really real in Tucson. In 2017, we had a quarter of the city living under the poverty line, which is like a really, really small number so for one person uh the federal poverty line is like twelve thousand dollars a year which is just not i don't know how you could live off of that even in tucson with like a really low um cost of living and and so bitcoin um kind of what you're talking about as far as being the hardest money to make uh you don't it, it makes it more fair for people um because the there's not like a money printer just endlessly issuing it. And the closer you are to the money printer, uh, the more advantage you have over others. And when you say meritocracy, you mean, um, you know, your, your value um, or success in society is depending on, you know, the value that you can produce instead of necessarily like uh, being 
a corrupt official that somehow gains power or having access to a money printer um, and being a bank and having unfair uh, advantages over others. Um, yeah, essentially uh, using violence to extract wealth from people mm-hmm. or, or lie or misleading them in order to extract wealth from people versus meritocracies. You know, people are, are able to defend themselves very well from extortion and theft. And so in order to, to take their money, it has to be much more consensual. And so you have to provide a, a good or service that they actually want rather than um, essentially being able to strong arm your way into their pockets, um, which has sort of been the modus operandi of, of the 20th century. <laughs> and now, now we finally have the ways to protect ourselves digitally um, from theft much more easily that, um, that I think going forward, it, yeah, you'll be able to defend yourself pretty well. And, and so if someone wants to make money, the options, it's, it's less easy for them to go into sort of the, the career of force or the career of extortion. And, and that's just less enticing and, and, so they'll, they'll sort of be forced to go into entrepreneurship um, and business. And, and that makes people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, to think about digital goods having more value than physical goods. Um, I want to circle back to uh, something that you were talking about in regards to uh, if we were, if Bitcoin if and when Bitcoin becomes like the dominant currency of the world, governments have less power to uh, have or fund social programs. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would find that really problematic uh, first hearing it. Um, what, yeah, what uh, I think is missing from that conversation is oftentimes, you know, our, our politicians come in, they present these social programs, uh, as a fix to problems that they created. Um, it's not a addressing the root issue, um, which is a lot of times, you know, a lot of it has to do with money. So you, you referenced uh, 1971 and coming off the gold standard and inequality um, being created since then. If there weren't these issues, like if insurance was actually affordable and healthcare was affordable because the money was sound and they couldn't get away with um, jacking up the prices and, and there were actually competitive markets and there weren't these uh, um, kind of monopolist, monopolistic uh, systems, we wouldn't need the extent of the social programs. Um, is that kind of what you were referring to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that you ever, um, or that, that government should ever really provide large social programs. <laughs> and so even if, uh, like healthcare were expensive or, um, yeah, or housing were expensive in, in a lot of ways. So for housing, as an example, the housing is expensive because the money is is garbage. Uh, I think healthcare is is fairly expensive in the U.S. because it's not a free and open market. But there's there's a lot of coercion um, in the healthcare industry, and government has has its hands on a, 
it a lot. And, and as a result, the prices are very high. And so the more you can extract government from the healthcare industry, the, the less expensive the prices would be. <laughs> um, but yeah, so even, even if you have some of these social problems, um, the answer is, is unfortunately not the government getting involved and, and trying to fix it. Because in a lot of ways, they end up creating these weird moral hazards that end up subsidizing the exact thing that they wish to, to end. Um, and that, that doesn't happen as much with private charities and private organizations, because um, they have a much better sense of individuals. And, and so if you can, um, yeah, if <laughs> this may be a, a strange way to explain this, but with private charities and, and institutions, they're, they're, they don't have an infinite money. And so they need to be very thoughtful about how they allocate those resources. And so they're unlikely to simply give somebody um, like a pension forever or give somebody money forever. And so if you look at the history of a private organization, a lot of like church charities, um, they're, they're very good at, at, you know, like when somebody has a, a moment of weakness, they'll, they'll step in, they'll provide support, and then they'll take the support away so that that person can be independent again. And, and as soon as you build up this big bureaucracy um, of a welfare state, that goes away. And so that there's not this sort of like thoughtful, kind, and compassionate sort of removal of the supports so that people can be independent again. And it, increasingly people just become more and more dependent upon the support from the government. Um, and so, you know, like people in small church charities, you, your house burns down, great, people come, they, fix, they, they give you a place to live temporarily, you know, they'll, they'll donate some money, they'll build your house up. Um, and then they'll step back and, and like, you will no longer be, <laughs> no longer be like on the dole of the church. Whereas um, in the welfare state, uh, your house burns down. They don't, they don't fix your house. They just give you a thousand dollars a month. And then there's no timeline to, to sort of reasonably remove that. And so you would end up becoming increasingly dependent on that thousand dollars a month um, because there's there's no like compassionate um, personal relationships to, to be able to gauge like okay this is an appropriate amount of support okay now now that you're more independent we'll take a little bit away okay now you're more independent we'll take a little bit away um, and, and private charities are, are very good at, at having this end goal of like we want our citizens you know who may be helped now to ultimately be independent and fully functioning and, and able to contribute to society and sure. government welfare programs actually are the exact opposite. Like that's not their goal. Their goal is to create as many essentially employees of the welfare system as possible. And so they try and expand it as much as possible because those become sort of this voting block that you can then manipulate towards, um, towards expanding the state even more. Um, so, so just private charities work very well towards solving these social issues um, and these welfare states and large government programs do not. And so when libertarians and, or Bitcoiners or, or people talk about you know, moving away from the welfare state, the goal is not to eliminate welfare altogether. Um, it's, it's simply to, ch to 
change the organization that's providing it from the state, which we don't think is, is a particularly helpful <laughs> or useful or good organization to provide it toward these private charities um, and, and private or organizations like churches. Or, you know, if you're not religious, I'm, I'm not Christian, I'm a Buddhist, but like, you know, some sort of private organization that's smaller scale can provide the exact same services much more effectively um, than the federal government. Sure. Yeah, I, th I think just historically, um, uh, the church organizations have been the institutions, but there could be secular organizations that form sure. as well. And there are. Yeah, there definitely yeah. are. Um, yeah, yeah, there's the... Uh, and I think that's something that's really powerful too, you know, when you use sound money and you attain financial freedom um, and you're not just having your wealth completely stolen from you through inflation mm -hmm. consistently, you have the ability to give money and really be helpful to your community um, and to give to these private organizations. Like, you know, I, I would be, I think I would do a much better job. Um, and I think I do do a much better job if I wasn't constantly being taxed to take my money and better my community um, than what the government does with it in funding these social programs. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, uh, would as well. Uh, I mean, there's always the uh, argument against that, that people are greedy, but you know, that um, <laughs> they are, they certainly are greedy, but I, I think even if, so like, imagine we like, got rid of taxes and, even if, and I, I actually don't think that, that you would see a massive increase in people, like as a result of earning all this money, they become more philanthropic. I don't really imagine that happening. Mm -hmm. um, but those people still would invest that money in, into their local communities. Um, so perhaps they would, you know, like they, they personally want a bike park for themselves. And so they would like, you know, invest in a bike park in their local community. And, and while that may not be purely philanthropic because it's, you know, serving them, um, that still would be contributing to the community. Similarly, like maybe they would decide to, to buy a little bit fancier food at the grocery store. And, and while that's not incredibly philanthropic, that puts more money back to the grocery store, you know? Yeah, yeah, there'd be less demand for uh... <laughs> generic products yeah that's an interesting uh take yeah support more probably more support for small businesses and then oh yeah wow well interesting conversation uh, kind of i know you gotta go here pretty soon so wrapping up um what what's really bringing hope um to you right now during this insane time <laughs> uh, good question. Are you are you really excited for a particular political candidate to solve all your issues? <laughs> no, no, not not <laughs> excited for that. Um, I think I think one of the cool things about my journey into Bitcoin is it's it's in, increasingly sort of narrowed my focus in my life toward the people directly around me and toward my life. And so I'm just less and less concerned with sort of national drama playing out, international drama playing out, and more and more concerned with my health, my relationships, my parents, my girlfriend, uh, my job. 
Um, and so like this past year has, has strangely actually, I know this is unusual for, <laughs> for to say, but it has been one of the, the best years of my life. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to keep working, you know, for a company I really like, keep meditating and keep growing my, my personal relationship with my girlfriend. Um, so yeah, and keep spending time outside. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, so you've been on some other podcasts too. Uh, so if you search uh, Reed Womack on uh, YouTube, you'll pop up. Um, where, are some other <laughs> where are some other places uh, people can find uh, your work and uh, what you're doing? Absolutely. The best place to get in touch with me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Reed Womack, R-E-E-D-W-O-M-M-A-C-K. Um, I've done a little bit of writing on Medium too, um, about scarcity, actually, meditation. <laughs> so the <laughs> Buddhism and Bitcoin scarcity I've, I've written about. Um, and then if, if you want to sign up to start saving in Bitcoin, the best place to do that is, is Swan Bitcoin. And you can sign up and get uh, $10 free of Bitcoin. <laughs> Don't let that uh, confuse you. Bitcoin is actually very hard to get. <laughs> so don't let the giveaway uh, confuse you. But it, yeah, if you sign up at swanbitcoin.com slash you can get uh, $10 free and, and set an account up and start saving $5, $10 a month. Um, or you know, if you want to save a lot more, you can. Um, and it's just so it's the easiest and safest way to, to, to start buying Bitcoin. We, we make it very beginner friendly. So, uh, check it out and otherwise, yeah. Thank you for having me on. This was really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for people that are listening, uh, $10 a week is one meal. Uh, it's like, I like to say it's like one, uh, burrito. Um, so if you're willing to, uh, sacrifice one burrito you can get ten dollars a week of bitcoin which is forty dollars a month which adds up over time and yeah check out swan bitcoin do you, do you have like a promo code um, yeah that, that was it that was the it was swanbitcoin.com slash read slash read okay yeah <laughs> sorry if you sign up at swan bitcoin you won't get ten dollars free so oh, but if so you, you have you, to use yep you have to use that slash then you do there you go slash read the slash for the ten dollars all righty <laughs> well thanks for coming on reed that was a really fun conversation with reed and uh yeah, it's been fun following him on Twitter the last few months and, and talking back and forth. He actually talked me out of changing the podcast name um, from Tucson Blockchain to Tucson Bitcoin, which I think is appropriate. Um, you know, we're we're all on this journey together and are growing, and it's just good to have, um, you know, so many different perspectives on, on what Bitcoin is and you know where it's going and, and how it can change things. And, you know, there's some principles that we you know share together which is that the monetary system is broken and needs a major overhaul and bitcoin is the solution to that um but yeah i uh 
uh, Swan's not paying me for this. I mean, the referral program, I do get, uh, you know, a little bit of money uh, for from referrals. But uh, the reason why I refer people to them is, you know, I stand by um, my statement pretty strongly is that they're a company built on integrity. Um, when I got into the space in 2018, you know, I signed up for Coinbase, did the typical thing, and, you know, was immediately blasted with these all, all these altcoins and, and just nonsense, you know, I remember looking into them, trying to figure out what the heck is going on, and just getting let down all these, like, really weird um, paths where, you know, people were suggesting a bunch of nonsense, and there's been so many people that have been scammed out of their money. Um, and there's none of that nonsense with Swan. You know, they, they uh, incentivize you to be, you know, a good Bitcoiner. You know, what I do is I do a weekly dollar cost average and I have it auto withdrawal into my hardware wallet. And that's what I would suggest doing too. And there's not a lot of um, options out there to do that with other uh, uh, exchanges, you know. I'd, I'd highly suggest that people avoid trading um, because you'll probably lose. There's there's wild price fluctuations, you know, and there's a bunch of people trying to like push their TA on you on YouTube, and it, in my opinion, it's a bunch of nonsense. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a case. Definitely stick with the winners, and Swan Bitcoin is full of a bunch of winners. And you know, another thing, just speaking about their integrity like Jan wrote a book inventing Bitcoin which is really good um, and they're giving it out for free you can go on the website and, and get the book for free and it's a really good intro uh, to Bitcoin uh, and yeah but yeah highly suggest following these guys on uh, Twitter uh, it'll be entertaining it'll be thought-provoking you'll learn something from them um, yeah Reed's a solid dude if you ever run into a problem with swan you'll be talking to him and, and he's very helpful um so yeah anyways i hope you enjoyed this episode and uh don't forget to leave a review subscribe do all that stuff that helps uh, the podcast grow and hope you have a good one